Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Does God fall in love? Humans can be said to fall in love because love existed before humans did. We just fall into it. But what about God's love? How important can we be to him? We will now join Rabbi Friedman for How Important Can We Be? So this is actually the 800th anniversary of Rambam's birthday. So it's quite appropriate that we're actually uh, devoting some time to looking into Rambam. Because I imagine that 800 years from now, nobody's going to be looking into us. So he must have done something right that 800 years later people are uh, interested in what he has to say and in awe of what he has to say. One of the things that Rambam says in uh, The Guide to the Perplexed is that because God is perfect and infinite and so on, he is unaffected by what human beings do and that nothing that a human being does can possibly affect him. Logically, This is very convincing. Makes perfect sense. How could the Creator be affected by what His creation does? In fact, when we say that God created the world out of nothing, one of the uh, deeper meanings, of course, God created the world out of nothing, that's what creation means. Creation means you start with nothing, you got to create. If something already exists, then you're not creating, you're only changing the form. So once we say God created the world, then we understand it means without any material, because then the question would be, well, who created that material? So the simplest meaning of creation out of nothing means there was no material, there was no substance when God created the world. He started from scratch. But a deeper meaning to that is, if the world did not in fact exist, but there was compelling reason for it to exist, then even if it didn't exist physically, it existed in principle, because it's something that ought to exist. So principle demands that it exist, then it would already be existent in principle. That's why we say God created the world out of nothing, meaning to say there was no principle that dictated that a world should exist. And that's why if you ask the question, why did God create the world? The only correct answer is that he wanted to. Because any other reason would contradict the idea of creation out of nothing. Because if there was a good reason to create the world, then it's not out of nothing, it's out of a good reason. The Rebbe asks the question, what does it mean when the Medrash says that immediately upon creation, God was revealed in this world, but when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, then God was concealed from the world. The Rebbe asks, in what way was God revealed in the world? There was no one around. There was no one here to speak of God, to teach about God, to serve God, to worship God. So in what way was God present? And the Rebbe's answer in that particular discourse is that 
precisely because there was no one around and there was no relationship going on between creation and creator. That's why God was revealed in this world, because if you looked at the world, the first thing that would come to mind is God. It's like, you know, when you see a beautiful piece of art, you don't think about the artist. You're looking at the art. Wow, look at that, look at this, wow, what? And then eventually you say, who did this? But if it's atrocious, if it's just lousy, if there's no art to it whatsoever, the first thing that strikes you when you look at it is, who did this? And why didn't they hang him instead of the picture? <laughs> so when you looked at the world before there was Adam and Chava, there was nothing there. It was big, it was immense, it was complex, but there was nothing. So the first thought that would strike you if you looked at the world at that moment, you would say, why? What for? Who did this? Once there was Adam and Chava, you don't think about God immediately. First you notice what's going on. It's interesting. It's dramatic. She made him eat. He said it was her fault. Come on, stuff going on. When you get past that, then maybe you'll ask, so why did God create the world? But before there was Adam and Chava, that was the first thought that would strike you. It's a useless world. Now, when you see a useless world, you question, why would anybody create such a thing? So your thought goes directly to the creator. But when human beings came along and made the world more complex, our thoughts don't go to the creator so quickly. And in that sense, God is more concealed from the world. So all of this points to one thing. The world does not offer a compelling argument for its own existence. And that's what it means that God created the world out of nothing. Out of nothing meaning out of no compelling reason. On the other hand, how can we say that God created the world without a compelling reason? What kind of God does that? But when the Rambam wrote those words, and even today some people studying Rambam unfortunately, tragically, misunderstand when Rambam says God cannot be affected by his creation or by what people do, it doesn't mean that he is not affected. Because to say that God is unaffected is to dismiss all of Torah as irrelevant. God forbid. And Rambam could not be accused of such a thing. So some people say, well, there's Rambam the philosopher and there's Rambam the rabbi. God forbid. He did not wear two hats or turbans, or whatever it is they wore back then. Rambam says God cannot be affected by what human beings do. That's absolutely true. God can't be affected by what human beings do. Is God affected by what human beings do? Absolutely. And of course, Rambam would be the first to say that. He wouldn't write 14 volumes of Jewish law if it didn't affect the Creator. So let's understand this. A human being like all created beings, is an affected being. Uh, if you want to use Einstein's term, we are relative creatures. We exist in a world of relativity. Why am I what I am? For many reasons, beyond me. I am influenced. I am affected. Many things affect what I am, who I am, how I am. So I can't claim to be 
an original. I'm not all me. I'm a conglomerate of things that formed me or influenced me or affected me. And that's not wrong. That's not an illness. It's not a, a malfunction. That's what a created being is. If you're part of creation, then you are part of a complex system and you are affected and influenced by that complex system. God is essential. In, in Hebrew, it's called atzmi. What that means is this. A human being cannot love someone without that someone instigating the love. I can't love you unless there's something lovable about you. I can't love you unless there's something about you that appeals to me and instigates the love. So when a person says, why do you love me? They're not asking why you love. They're asking, what is it about me that makes you love me? Do you like my sense of humor? Do you like my looks? Do you like my mind? Do you like what? They're asking about themselves, not about you. So when they say, why do you love me? They want to hear about themselves. <laughs> Imagine a woman says to her husband, why do you love me? And the husband says, well, you see, I've always wanted to run a family, so I It's all, you know, you're out of the house. You wanted, you thought, and that's why? Wrong answer. What is it about me? There are certain loves that we call more essential loves. A mother loves her child for no reason. Well, not for no reason. It's her child. It's a pretty good reason. So what is it about the child that makes you like, well, it's not the kid did me a big favor or anything. The kid is brilliant. The kid is talented. No, he's just a day old. So what is it about him you love? Well, you love the fact that he's yours. But that's because we are not atzmi. Nothing begins with us. Nothing begins with me. I come into this world already in process. I've already inherited a bunch of feelings, a bunch of experiences, a bunch of personality traits, characteristics, limitations, all sorts of stuff. And it didn't begin with me. So when you ask me, why do you? It's really not a good question. Why do I? Who knows why do I? And that is the mystery of the human psyche. Am I doing what I'm doing because of a past life? Am I doing it because my mother screamed at me? Am I doing it because my grandfather hated me? I mean, what? So you're asking me about me? Even when I speak about me, it's not about me. Because there's very little of me that is really me. Purely me. It's partly you. You made me do it. When God creates the world, and the world offers no compelling reason to be created, then what motivates creation? So we have a hard time understanding this. The world doesn't need to be created. There's nothing about the world that says it ought to be created, but God creates the world. Why? But when you ask God why, you're really asking him not, did your mother make you do it? There is no mother. 
contrary to popular opinion. God does not have a mother. So what made him do it? So when you ask God, why did you do it? Here you're asking a question that can be called atzmi. You are the source, you're the beginning, you're the origination. What's going on? So if God says, why did I create the world? I love the world. I love a relationship. I have a passion for a home in the lower world. Say, ah, so the lower world means something to you. No. So the lower world appeals to you. No. Well, then why did you create it? Because I have a passion for it. Well, if you have a passion for it, it must appeal to you. No. You're talking about God. In God, feelings or opinions or desires are not instigated. They are original. Because he is atzmi. So it doesn't follow, logically, to say, well, if God wanted to create the world, then there must be something about the world that made him want it. No. That's true of a human being. If you want a certain kind of car, there must be something about the car that appeals to you. That's true. But when God says, I want a home in the lowest world, oh, so that means that the lowest world is appealing. No, it's not. Well, if it's not appealing, then why do you want it? You know what the answer is? (laughs) Because I want it. It begins here. So when we say God desires a dwelling place in the lower world, we're actually describing him, not the lower world. And that's why the Medrash uses the term desire to describe this interest on God's part, because it's the closest thing we can come to in the human experience of wanting something for no good reason. It's a desire. A desire very often has no good reason. It's like desire for the sake of desire. So what will you gain from this? Nothing. It'll fulfill my desire. Yeah, but why do you desire it? I don't know. I just desire it. Of course, we can find some cause in human nature, but that's the closest we can come to, in terms of our own experience, to an initial interest, not instigated from the outside, not influenced by external Let's go back to Rambam for a moment. Rambam says it is not possible that God would be affected by human beings. Very true. God cannot be affected by a human being. But does he care? Does he want? Does he have a desire concerning human beings? Absolutely. How can you even question that? He created the world, he revealed himself. He shows an interest, voiced an interest. What Rambam is saying, this interest that God has, this desire that God has, this involvement that God gets involved with every detail of our lives and cares, like President Bush said, God is not neutral on these subjects. All of that, you should not mistakenly think that that's because you are appealing It's not because of you, it's because of him. So if God gets angry in response to something we do, that's him. 
That's not because we can influence him. It's because he is affected originally, not as a rebound. That's the principle of God's infinity. Kabbalah comes along and says that although it's true that God is infinite, transcendent, and completely removed from anything finite, but in his desire to have a dwelling place in the lower world, he limits himself and takes on finite form. This is called tzimtzum, which creates a chain of worlds called seder hishtalshalus, the order of the chain. God brings himself down to the level of this world, and in that tzimtzum state, in that confined state, he is actually affected, or that part of him is actually affected. So the anger can in fact be a response to us, as it says in the Torah, if you will be stubborn with me, I will be stubborn with you. So there's a reflection. As the Maggid said, the Mishnah says, Da mimcha, know what is above you, which simply means know that there's a God above you, be humbled by it. The Maggid said, Da malamaila, know that what is above is mimcha, is of you. Not know that there is something above you. Know that that which is above is from you. If you act a certain way, God acts that way in return. So we are actually influencing God's behavior. But that's the byproduct of God's original desire to have a dwelling place in the lower world, for which purpose he brings himself down into a relationship where there is a give and take, and he is affected. Now, one of the things that, one of the corollaries of this idea, it says in Hasidus and in Kabbalah that forgiveness for our sins, the fact that we can do tshuva and be forgiven for our sins, comes from the fact that there's a part of God that is unaffected by the sin. And when we appeal to that part of God, that relationship provides the possibility for tshuva. In other words, we have a relationship. I can do something that hurts you. But then, of course, our relationship has more to it than that. I can appeal to the deeper part of our relationship where the relationship is more important than what I did or didn't do. And from there, the relationship can heal. Like we say in the davening, yes, we sinned and we were terrible and so on and so forth, but you are our father and we are your children. So what do you do? Divorce your child? You can't divorce your child. So from that part of our relationship, we can heal the part that was damaged. In other words, there's a part to God that is above and therefore unaffected by our sins. And if we can reach that part of God, if we can appeal to that part of God, that's where forgiveness will come from. But the part of God that is affected by the sin, that part cannot forgive you. That's not where forgiveness comes from. That part is damaged. And it needs to be fixed. And it can't fix itself. 
That's why you have to appeal to something higher that has the power to fix the things below it. When we say God is not affected by a sin, or that there's a certain part of God that is not affected by the sin, it doesn't mean that the sin doesn't matter. Because every commandment in Torah, both positive and negative, is an expression of God's essence. That's who he really is. And therefore, there can't be a place in God where it doesn't matter to him. So what does it mean God is not affected by the sin? God is not affected by the damage or the consequences of the sin. And the damage and the consequences of the sin can be corrected. But is there any level in God where he doesn't care whether you keep kosher or not? No such level. But the damage that comes from not keeping kosher, there's a part of God that is beyond damage. And that's what Rambam is saying. He cannot be affected by human behavior. Not he doesn't care. He can't be affected means the damage or the consequences of human behavior cannot affect him. But does human behavior matter to him? Absolutely. And how is that? Because he chose, because he wants, because he's original. So when we say, but human beings are so frail and human beings are so finite and human beings are so tiny, how could they possibly affect him? The answer is you're working the wrong way. You're starting with the human being trying to figure out what is it about him that would make him important to God. Rambam says, give it up. There's nothing there. There's nothing. You're not going to find anything in the human being that's going to make him important to God. Is Rambam then saying that we're not important to God? God forbid. He's not saying that. All right, make this very clear. Rambam says, no matter how long you search and delve and scrape the depths of the human being, you will not find anything that makes him important to God. How can a human being possibly be important to God? How can anything a human being does possibly affect God? You can search all you want. You will never find. Because there is nothing about the human being that should or could affect God. Now, is God affected by what human beings do? <laughs> Absolutely. But how is that? Not because there is something about the human being. There is something about God. And because of that something, he is affected by what we do. By every detail of what we do. By every thought. By every word. Now, let me ask you a question. If God's interest in us is not in response to us, but originates in him, does that make his interest in us greater or lesser? If it's not in response to us, then how deep is it? How real is it? It's a great compliment when you say to someone, I love your, your cooking. I love the way you look. I love the way you think. I love your sense of humor. I love everything about you. It's a great compliment. But it's also a little bit uncomfortable because it's almost like putting a condition on the love. So when a person says, I love your sense of humor, it's like saying, I love you as long as you have a sense of humor. Because without your sense of humor... Uh... <laughs> 
So although there's a compliment there, there's also a little bit of a burden there. It places a burden on you. You better keep up that sense of humor, otherwise this is over. That's why compliments are very pleasant and very uncomfortable at the same time. Very often children hate to be complimented by their parents. It scares them. When parents are always saying to their children, you are so smart, eventually the kid says, stop it. It sounds like a condition. You're so pretty. You're so cute. You're so, hey, hey what, what if I'm not? I've got to be cute all the time. It's hard. <laughs> you try being cute all the time. If somebody says, I love you, what about you? I don't know. Puzzles me. <laughs> I wonder about that myself. What is it I love about you? I don't know. I used to know. Everybody used to know. Because at the beginnings of a relationship, there is a something. Or we thought there was a something. Then we find out that it's really not there. I thought you were capable and could do anything. Well, you can't. But I thought you did. That's why I used to love you. Now I found out that you're not so capable, but I love you anyway. Why? I don't know. Oh, so you love me for nothing. What kind of love is that? I don't know. That may be the real thing. So here are two things. First of all, what is it about me that appeals to you? It's a legitimate question. But there's another issue at hand. What is it about you that makes you love me? That's a completely different question. Much harder to answer. Because very often there is no cause. It's original. Now that's not your average relationship. It's not your average love. But it does exist. Usually after many years of the first type. After many years of loving a person because of how they appeal to you, you find yourself loving them because of you, not because of them. What is the result? The result is... It doesn't matter what they do. Nothing they do can weaken the love because it's not coming from them. It's coming from you. So when God says, I am interested in the world for no reason at all, or as Rambam says, I can't be affected by you, but I want to, that tells us that this love is eternal. We can't destroy it, no matter how bad we are. It's absolute you also can't improve it, because it's absolute. Now, going back to the Tzimtzum factor, Rambam is speaking about God as an essence and in the principle of what God is. What God decides to do or chooses to do, this changes everything, of course. Rambam is not speaking about God in the relationship. He's speaking about God in principle. He's speaking philosophically. Philosophically, you speak about God in principle. Well, of course, God can choose to do whatever he wants. But then it's not philosophical anymore. That's personal. So it's true that God lowers himself, restricts himself, contracts himself into a relationship with his creation. Is that a philosophical statement? No. Philosophically, God is pure, untouched, unaffected, 
infinite, and so on. That's true. That's like a father saying to his son, you know, I don't need your favors. That's absolutely true. And that's a truth that everybody knows and everybody recognizes and everybody will agree with. The father is a grown-up. He is independent. He's got his own house. He's got his own car. And he's got his own business. He doesn't need his son. Isn't that true? How could the father possibly need his son? Yeah, unless he's getting old. Somebody would come along and say, oh, come on, that's not true. A father needs his son. He's emotionally attached to him. That's a different story. It's not a contradiction. If a woman says to her husband, uh, you could exist without me. True. Hopefully true. Does that mean that there's a loss of love or a loss of... No. They're two separate things. In fact, in a marriage, you should come to the marriage perfectly capable of living without the person you're going to marry. Because if you're not, why would she want to marry you? So you don't come to the marriage needy. You come to the marriage independent. I lived 25 years without you. I can live another 25 years without you. But I don't want to. But I don't want to. And my desire is so strong that I can't live without you. But I can just do fine without you. And both things are true. If you're talking in fact, yes, you must be able to live on your own. You have lived on your own, and you can continue to live on your own. That's the facts. Now, the feelings, which are not a philosophical subject, in terms of feelings, no, you can't live without him. Is that a contradiction? Not a contradiction. So when Rambam says, God is unaffected by anything human beings can do, of course, true. He wants to? Well, who's going to stop him? You say, no, 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 you're God. You, you can't. You've got to stay distant. You've got to be aloof. You gotta be... If he wants to be involved, of course he can be involved. And then how deeply will he get involved? Absolutely. So Rambam doesn't get into God contracting himself because that's not a philosophical consideration. So what do we know about God philosophically? Then what do we know about God through revelation? Those are two separate things and they are never in contradiction because they're both true side by side. Does this make any sense? So, Hasidus puts it this way. There are actually three levels, three dimensions. The first dimension is called the light of God that fills the world. Memale kol almin. It fills the world. What does it mean it fills the world? It is the world. The created being is its creator. Every part of it is him because God gets involved in the details of the creation. Of course, that part of him is not all of him. Then there's a second level. The second level is called the transcendent light, the light that surrounds the world but is not within the world. It's like life that is in the body, in each of the limbs of the body, causing the functions of those limbs. And then there's life in general, 
the transcendent life of the soul. And that's the life that a person has when he's in a coma. So the life of the soul is no longer in the individual organs and limbs, and that's why the eye doesn't see, the ear doesn't hear, the feet don't move, but he's alive. He's completely alive, but in a general sense. He has a general life that gives general life to all the limbs. He's not atrophying, but none of the specific individual life to the individual limb. So the eyes are alive, but they don't see. They're not alive with vision. The ear is alive, but not with hearing. The limbs are alive, but not with movement. So the soul also gives us a transcendent life and an imminent life. God, being the soul of the world, so to speak, enters the world on one level and remains neutral on another. Neutral meaning generic. On the individual level, every detail matters. Light and dark, sweet and sour, healthy, unhealthy, up or down, high or lower, big or smaller, all of these things matter. As we see in the description of the building of the, of the Mishkan. This has to be two and a half cubits, this has to be ten cubits, and this has to be, the measurements have to be exact, and they have to, down to the minutest detail. And this is divine need. Then there's a part of God in which the laws of nature do not exist. The world exists and everything's fine, but he doesn't get involved in the details. So up and down, hot and cold, light and dark, it's all the same. After all, he created the light, he created the dark. It's all the same. Like the soul that gives life to all the limbs equally. So that they're all alive, but there's nothing to distinguish one from the other. The eye doesn't behave any differently from the ear. They're just both alive. So God creates the world and everything in it indifferent to the distinctions so that good and evil can exist side by side. Light and dark can exist side by side. Big and small, it's all the same to him. A day is a thousand years. A moment is an eternity because there are no distinctions. On that level, the damage of sin does not exist. So what happened? So it became unclean, unclean, clean, it doesn't matter. The pig and the cow, same thing. The Jew and the non-Jew, same thing. Yaakov and Esav, twin brothers. And that's where forgiveness comes from. Then you go up to a higher level. In the higher level, called the essence of God, there... Nothing matters except God himself. And what is God himself? His desire for mitzvahs performed in a physical universe. That's him. That is his essence. So on that level of his essence, do the details matter? Absolutely. But does anything matter? No, nothing matters at all. If you're talking about the value of the thing, 
It has no value. Only God exists on that level of essence. But in God, does the detail have value? Absolutely. It's a detail of him that matters. There's one thing that matters in all three levels, and that is mitzvahs. And here's where it gets a little bit complicated. On that second level, night and day doesn't matter, good and bad doesn't matter, right and wrong doesn't matter, holy and unholy doesn't matter, but mitzvahs matter. That makes sense? We assume that the mitzvah is good and the sin is bad. And since good is good and bad is bad, that's why you should do the mitzvah and not do the sin. Right? You should do the mitzvah because it's good. You should avoid the sin because it's bad. God comes along and says, good and bad, I couldn't care less. Just do the mitzvah. There's more to the mitzvah than good. And there is more to the sin than bad. So even if good and bad doesn't matter, I still want the mitzvah and I don't want the sin. Why? Is something wrong with the sin? No, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't want it. And what's so good about the mitzvah? Nothing. I want it. Right? It's about me. It's not about good and bad. It's not about up and down. It's not about high and low. It's about me. So even when I don't care about right and wrong, I still care about tefillin, and I still care about kosher. Non-kosher food isn't wrong. That could be. I just don't want it. So on the lowest level, right and wrong matters. And sin is wrong. On the essential level, where there's only God, then what God wants, that's the only thing that counts. Who said anything about night and day, right and wrong, right or left? But in that middle one, it's a little confusing. Because you're saying, God doesn't care whether it's right or wrong. But he does care whether it's a mitzvah or a sin. So on all three levels, the mitzvahs are essential. So when Rambam says, God is not affected by your sins, your sins don't do any damage, he doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the sin. He means the damage. What is the damage? If you do a sin, you bring the world down. Well, there's a part of God that doesn't relate to up and down, but he still doesn't want you to do the sin. There's an effect Damage caused by a sin that it makes you more callous, insensitive. There's a part of God that doesn't care about sensitive and insensitive. He just cares about the mitzvah. So when Rambam says God is not affected by your sins, it doesn't mean he doesn't care about the sin. Finally, the punchline. There's a statement in Torah, in many places actually, for example, it says that after Mashiach comes and then the whole new world order comes in Olam Haba, in Olam Haba, all the mitzvahs are canceled, which isn't possible. It's like saying God is canceled, but God changes. can't be. What is the meaning of the statement that in Olam Haba, 
the mitzvahs are canceled. Mitzvah means commandment. In Olam Haba, there'll be no commandment. Make sense? Not there won't be any tefillin. Of course there'll be tefillin. But there won't be any commandment. You command somebody if they will do or not do. But if invariably they're going to do, then there's no commandment anymore. So in the, in the world to come, we will put on tefillin like we breathe. There's no commandment to breathe. Today there is a commandment to put on tefillin because we'd rather not. So we have to be commanded to do it. But in the world to come, when putting on tefillin will be as natural as breathing, what's a commandment? So there'll be no commandments doesn't mean there won't be tefillin. You've got to keep things clear. There's a level today on which there are no commandments. Because command, not command, obey, not obey, not important. Just the tefillin. So again, when Rambam says, God can't not possibly be affected by our behavior, it's absolutely true. And at the same time, everything we do is important to him. What about us makes us important to him? <laughs> Nothing. So how is it that we are important to him? It's something about him. He's got this thing, you know. <laughs> it's him. And if it is him, then smallness is going to get in the way. We are too small. Talking about him. It's a whole different story. So the Navi says, in the name of God... Uh, that when Satan comes along and says, why do you favor the Jews? They're misbehaving like everybody else. And then the good angels come along and say, no, no, they're doing mitzvahs, they're great. God says, okay, cut the argument. Whether you're right or you're right, they're my kids. What am I going to do? So there's a level where good, bad, they're same, Jew, non-Jew, I don't care. There's something about me that is attached to these people, and there's nothing I can do about it. Up or down, right or wrong, doesn't matter. This is me. In fact, the, the Medrash actually puts the word, to exchange them for another nation isn't possible. Not possible? You're talking about God. What's not possible to God? Interesting. What does God find impossible? Himself. <laughs> he finds himself impossible. <laughs> he can't not be him. And therefore, to exchange them for another people, for another nation, is not possible because it's not about them. It's about me. And me, I can't change. I'm impossible. I sometimes hear these silly conversations or debates why did God choose the Jews? Oh, because Avraham was uh, teaching people about God while other people were still cannibals. That's why. And what if Avraham's children become cannibals? Then it should all be over. So when God says to Avraham, your children forever will be my chosen people, how do you know? Maybe they'll be cannibals. The answer is it doesn't matter. If we were cannibals, we would still be the chosen people. Because God did not choose us because of something we did. 
He chose us because of something he did, and that can't change. Will God destroy the world someday if he gets really fed up? No. The world can't do that to him. So if he decides he wants the world, he wants the world and it's going to be. Yeah, but, you know, it's looking pretty bad. Good, bad, what's the difference? It's him. So it's amazing how at the very same time, the world can be absolutely insignificant and meaningless to God, and at the same time, his entire essence is committed to this meaningless world. So you have environmentalists who are very upset because pollution is ruining the look. Remember that advertisement, the Indian crying because he saw litter in the, in the lake? What's he crying about? Why is he crying? Because it doesn't look good? Because the beauty of the river has been affected? It's not pretty? That's a reason to cry. It used to be beautiful, and now you ruined it. That's upsetting. But there's another argument somewhere in the uh, environmentalist's thinking. You did this to the world? Who gave you permission? Not your world. That's a much deeper argument. Pretty is only pretty. And if this is not pretty, so clean it up, it'll be pretty again. But who gave you permission to do this? It's not your world. That's a much deeper, much stronger argument. And if it hurts, it's a much deeper hurt. People are walking around destroying somebody else's world, a world that is not theirs. How could you do this? So if you stop with Rambam's statement, God cannot be affected by what human beings do, then polluting the world, destroying the world, and blowing it up would not affect him at all. If you stop there. But if you continue on, the world has no intrinsic value. It can't possibly appeal to God on any level whatsoever. But he, on his own, from his essence, chose this world and wants this world, and you're messing it up? That's serious. That's very serious. And applying that to our own lives. We sometimes feel bad. We did something stupid. We did something vulgar. It's not nice. We're embarrassed. It's, yeah, it's true. Ugly is ugly. Embarrassing is embarrassing. Vulgar is vulgar. Yeah. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is, even if it's not vulgar, God doesn't want it. What are you doing? Oh, it's not so terrible. That's not the issue. Oh, who's it going to hurt? That's not the issue. It's not about hurt. It's about him. Is there a value to making a Seder, even if it doesn't remind you of the Jews coming out of Egypt? The Torah says, eat the matzah so that you will remember that you came out of Egypt. Well, what if I don't remember? <laughs> I'm not interested in history. It's Seder night. Okay, fine. What am I supposed to do? Eat matzah? Eat matzah. Dip the whatchamacallit into the... Oh, fine. Dip it. 
I make no connection or association with Jews coming out of Egypt 3,000 years ago. Am I still doing anything valuable? Absolutely. God wants me to eat matzah. Will that make me remember? It will, it won't. It would be nice if it did. But if it doesn't, honor your father and mother so that you will live long on the land. And if you don't live long on the land, it doesn't matter. Give charity, be a nice person. And if you're not a nice person, again, there's a level in which God wants you to be nice. Practice generosity. Have a good heart. You don't have a good heart? Give tzedakah. So there's an absolute truth and consistency to the world that does not change anywhere, ever, on any level. And that is the mitzvah. On a certain level, the mitzvah will make you refined. The mitzvah will make you more sensitive. The mitzvah will make you more holy. The mitzvah will give you long life. The mitzvah will remind you of your ancestors. It will connect you to wonderful things. On a certain level, all those wonderful things are irrelevant. But the mitzvah is still important. And that's because essence is everywhere. The adjectives come and go. But the essence is true everywhere. Make sense? So when Rambam says God is not affected by your behavior, he's inspiring you to appreciate the importance of a mitzvah, not, to, not undermining the significance of a mitzvah. By saying nothing you do can affect God, that makes it all the more amazing and all the more awesome that God wants you to do a mitzvah. You who cannot affect him. And he wants you to do the mitzvah. So it actually enhances Yiddishkeit. It's not a contradiction to Yiddishkeit. Those people who say God is affected by human behavior, they cheapen the mitzvah. Because then it's just a give and take. If you don't give, he doesn't take. If he doesn't give, you don't take. It, it, It cheapens the whole thing. Like this guy who came from Europe, and the first time in his life he ate a non-kosher sandwich, and after that he didn't keep kosher anymore. Why? Because he didn't die. So what does Rambam say to that? Rambam says to that, you think you have to die when you eat a non-kosher sandwich? What do you think, you can push God's buttons and he reacts? He doesn't want you to eat non-kosher. What does it have to do with your dying or not dying? Choking or not choking? (laughs) So if you reduce the mitzvah to its consequences, then you've reduced the mitzvah to this world. And this world is not important enough to die for. A mitzvah is important enough to die for. Jews have given up their lives for any number of mitzvahs. 